American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York. This presentation took place at the CUNY Graduate Center as part of our Bridging Historias Through Latino History and Culture program, a National Endowment for the Humanities Bridging Cultures at Community Colleges project. Thank you very much, uh, Lisandro. Thank you, Maria. And thank you, everyone, for being here and uh, willing to do uh, what we believe in and what we enjoy. I, I hear all kinds of wonderful things about um, the work you've been doing, and I'm uh, very happy uh, to be part of it. So I am uh, reminded of the fact that when Ostos was born, there was uh, a rainstorm. And when he, when he died, there was another rainstorm. Uh, he was born uh, uh, 19th century, 1829. He died in 1903 in the Dominican Republic, born in Puerto Rico, Mayagüez. So sometimes uh, the weather has a way of uh, prompting us to do uh, uh, important things in life. <laughs> I have been uh, working on research, as uh, Lisandro mentioned, uh, uh, 19th century Latinos in uh, New York and Latin Americans in New York City, or new Latins, as, as, as some of them call themselves, right? Uh, and uh, I, uh, I have a tremendous amount of material that I would like to share with you, but I'm not sure that this will be the occasion to share a lot of that, because actually, um, rather than do a schematic presentation, I'd like to go in depth and do some uh, things that really have uh, to do with some ish contemporary issues uh, and, and to be able to connect on the one hand. So I changed, the, I'm changing the topic slightly to uh, focus mostly on Ostos Amarti and specific texts by them. The other thing that uh, comes to mind is the passing of uh, Mandiva yesterday, Nelson Mandela, one of, uh, I think, uh, 20th century's uh, most important uh, figures in um, um, the world, finally uh, uh, said goodbye for a while. And he, uh, his contributions to uh, South Africa were such, as well as to the world, and his inspiration that I'd like to dedicate uh, this morning session to his memory and do something that is actually very much in, um, in the same vein as he, um, he worked for in terms of racial understanding, non-racialism. So the texts that I s chose today to work with are texts that have to do with race and uh, uh, they have to do with women to some extent too, although these were not written in New York City. But I do have uh, that perspective in mind. The two main figures <laughs> that I'd like to discuss today are Eugenio Maria de Hostos, uh, mostly known as an educator, Puerto Rican born, uh, 1839, in Mayagüez, of a uh, mixed Dominican, Puerto Rican heritage. Actually Caribbean, his grandfather was from Cuba, his uh, mother was Dominican, his father was Puerto Rican, and he's certainly one of the uh, 19th century intellectuals and activists who will promote a, what they call an Antillian Confederation, along with Betances, and Luperon, general from the Dominican Republic, and along with Jose Marti. Uh, so, Ostos is better known as an educator, but he's not widely recognized. He's also well known as a sociologist, one of the first Latin American sociologists, but he's not widely recognized for a number of other um, contributions that I think are really significant to the point that um, they have been neglected. 
and we need to really um, bring that back. The problem with Ostos's work is that it has been translated very sparsely, and the only anthology that exists is was published in the early 90s by the University of Puerto Rico and CUNY uh, among, and the city of San Juan, and it was not done through commercial means. So it's out of print, and it hasn't, there's no future um, reprinting in sight. So we are working with diverse materials. I am actually translating Ostos into English, and that's one of the reasons why I'd like to share these uh, translations with you so that we can look at his work and examine it, promote it, analyze it, critique it. He's an extraordinary 19th century uh, humanist, and his uh, contributions not just to politics and literature, but also to a number of other significant areas is uh, um, to be um, held as a, on a world, you know, contemporary level. So I'm sorry that I don't have this picture. And Martí was born in 1853. His father was Valenciano from Valencia. His mother was from the islands, from <clears throat> the Canary Islands. So these are also marginal centers. They're not, you know, the center of uh, culture and power in Spain. And so you, you may have known uh, a number of things about Martí. Martí really did most of his significant political career in New York City. And of course, with travels throughout the southern part of uh, Florida, Key West and Tampa and Ocala, uh, but spe specifically spent almost 14 years in New York City and um, worked with um, intellectuals from New York City as well as from other points. Uh, so Martí is very much connection with intellectuals in the city, writers, people who do um, editors, journalists, um, a number of uh, artists. And he is perhaps, because he had the option of informing himself through the media, because he was in New York City, he knew people who were influential, he wrote about them. He's probably the first modern journalist in Latin America. He actually was able to hear things that at the center when they were happening. So when Walt Whitman gives his last reading in 1888 in New York City, uh, Martí is there and he writes an article. And when uh, um, other people visit New York City, he manages to um, contact, visit here, and send to Latin America, La Nación in Buenos Aires, or to um, Venezuela or to Honduras or Mexico, El Partido Liberal, these uh, wonderful uh, texts that describe what was happening in the city, as we know from some of the translations that have been done about the Brooklyn Bridge, about the Statue of Liberty, about immigrants, about a number of important, he wrote over 200 escenas norteamericanas, right? So his, his, con his production on New York scenes from 19th century was extremely, it was voluminous and extremely significant. Now, what I'd like to do is bring to you then some texts that we can discuss. And, uh, and then from there, I can talk about specifics within uh, uh, the subject and in the lives of Otto San Martins and what they were presenting to the uh, Latinos or Latin Americans uh, at the time. Ostos, Eugenio Maria de Ostos, came to New York in October, uh, October 30th of 1869. 
that was um, a very busy time in New York City and in the United States as a whole. The whole time of reconstruction, the extraordinary um, development that was taking place in New York City. The Brooklyn Bridge was started to, to be built on that year. Um, the uh, uh, public library had been uh, founded the year before. A number of institutions were actually founded or taking off, even a subway was being experimented with in 1870. So this, this was real modernity. The modernity that um, people still talk about, although with less enthusiasm perhaps these days, um, that's maybe more in, from a historical perspective, was very much happening in a very intense and uh, ideological way. People talk about progress. People spoke about the need to bring uh, reform. The schools were certainly an area where both Latin American uh, intellectuals and uh, United States intellectuals started to, uh, to devote time and attention so that because it, it, it was a crucial issue with regards to what uh, should be the foundation of our nations. And therefore, both Martí and particularly Ostos, is they're, they're extremely interested and de devote a good amount of time and effort to thinking education, thinking about education. The uh, Ostos story will take him to bring him to New York very briefly. He went to study in Spain, sent by his family, and uh, became very um, involved in the uh, uh, struggle against the monarchy. He was uh, a Republican, uh, was very much influenced, like Martí would be later on, by um, a, philosophical, a philosophical tradition that had made an impact in Spain, the uh, Krausismo. Uh, he was, Kraus was, uh, Wilhelm Friedrich Krauss was a German philosopher who was not very much remembered these days, but was very well received in Spain. He had a very positive philosophy, uh, one which proposed um, education and became very open to women. Uh, and uh, there was a search or um, a desire to reach some kind of harmony in life and through education, uh, it, this would be a way of empowering people as well as making them relate to life in a, uh, in a very uh, um, self-fulfilling um, way. So Krauss is very much in, in the background uh, for both Ostos and later on Martí when he goes to Spain. Uh, not because they necessarily studied the philosopher, although they did, but because there are several institutions in Spain, including the Universidad Central, uh, which uh, had uh, important professors as well as administrators, the rector, right, the president who was Krausista. So they start conferences every Sunday to discuss education and to discuss the role of women. And so against that backdrop, and against the backdrop of um, Freemasons, which is another big institution in 19th century and earlier, uh, since the French Revolution, having a very decided impact on politics. They both were Masons, Martí and Ostos. Martí was not confirmed until a few years ago, but he's now known uh, to have been a Mason. And uh, there were a number of places where they were they participated uh, with the Masons 
uh, the Masons were generally very interested in change, uh, opposed to monarchy, opposed to any kind of control with uh, the intent of developing spiritually. So you had different stages of development, but human being as centrally and fundamentally able to go through a period and it's, it's of stages of perfectionism, right? Um, women were not allowed, but um, that wasn't just with Freemasonry, right? That was with a good number of other institutions. In any case, I think women are now allowed, by the way, to be Masons. This is relatively new for the last couple of years. Ostos comes to New York disenchanted with the September Revolution, 1868 in Spain. He, was, he became a, a liberal, a radical within the liberal party, anti-monarchical, and he was um, able to propose to some of the leadership that the Spanish should really be treating the Antillas, right? Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic also, but was not under Sp Spain's rule at that time, but um, Cuba, for sure, with a more autonomous set of rules that would allow uh, Cuba and Puerto Rico to set their own um, fiscal priorities and be able to to, to develop in ways that the Spanish monarchy and Catholicism had not allowed because of central control. Also, when he, the revolution in Spain comes to power in 1868, September 1868, he's hoping that there will be changes and that there will be um, a different policy towards the colonies. Uh, that doesn't quite happen. Uh, it's a time when um, the Cubans uh, are uh, embarked in a war uh, for independence, Céspedes, and uh, uh, Francisco Vicente Aguilera, and the Oriente uh, uprising uh, in October the 10th, 1868, and a similar kind of a ripe uprising that was not as successful and did not last very much, very much but in Puerto Rico in, uh, on September 23rd in Lares. But the reasons were quite similar. Um, this were revolts against centralism and against uh, excessive taxes and against um, uh, secondhand uh, uh, citizenship, if you will, um, lack of uh, recognition uh, of power, inclu including in political terms. And so Ostos flees Spain at age 30 to come to New York City, where he was incorrectly informed that there would be an expedition leaving for Puerto Rico to take up arms against Spain. There was no expedition leaving and uh, he actually stayed during that first sojourn about one year. And from New York, he's going to be uh, looking at both the United States and Latin America, but in a very uh, curious dynamics with the Cuban uh, patriotic junta, which was largely controlled by pro-annexationists or you know, Cubans that were favoring uh, annexation to the United States. And he's very much against all that. It's a nationalist. He becomes very much in favor of Puerto Rico being independent, of Cuba being independent, and the, the three or four Caribbean nations coming together in a uh, confederation. Um, so what I'd like to do then, I'd like to 
uh, share with you then the text that has to do with the um, Ostos's exposure to Native Americans in the United States, and then what he did with it later on when he traveled to Chile. He, he, he kept a very interesting diary, a journal. A lot of people did, writers kept journals during the, the 19th century. <clears throat> he thought, in this case, he was trying to use it as a way of examining himself, as a way of uh, revising his way of thinking, of looking at himself introspect introspectively. Uh, so, so he says, he's very honest in his diary. He says things that I don't think that he would have wanted uh, people to hear necessarily, but he was very honest. He, he was very straightforward. He, he was almost uh, politically incorrect about a, a lot of things that he said. And therefore, we see uh, Ostos as not necessarily as uh, official. And, and, and it's, it's very important to get that kind of uh, intimate thinker. Um, he arrived in the United States in 1869, the same year that the first transcontinental railroad was completed between Omaha and Sacramento. This was a milestone in the campaign to promote the settlement and development of the West. It also transformed strategic geopolitical and economic thinking having to do with the Mississippi. And that is going to be reflected in terms of military strategy as well as economic development in the United States. But the West was won at a very high cost in terms of displacement and genocide of Native Americans, period. Ostos, a keen observer, expresses an interest in becoming better informed about the issues that affect Native Americans, I should say. So this is an entry from the, his journal for June 13th, 1870. He came here October 30th, 1869. Um, and uh, it reads like this. Today, the Indian delegation that came to present their grievances to the white men, to the great father, is returning to its beloved forests to remote heavens where the survivors of the ancient natural settlers of this land have been relegated. Red Cloud, chief of the Sioux, has been outstanding for his eloquence, for his fervor in generous feelings, for his firmness, and for his forceful candor. I was born naked and I shall die naked, but that which the spirit has given us, we will have. I want peace with the great father and with the white men, but if the Romans that they sent to Fort Featherman continue to violate our treaties, stealing from us and killing us because we hunt, they're the ones who will want war, not us. That is a quote from, uh, uh, from Red Cloud. Um, Let the great father destroy that fort and send us men that are not big drinkers or soldiers. This is what the noble patriot, and now it comes back Ostos to, to comment on that. This is what the noble patriot, and he's talking about a noble patriot from the forest, using the term patriot in a very peculiar way, right? Interesting way. Has, this is what the noble patriot of, of the forest has said in his two meetings with the president and in his three or four meetings with the Secretary of Indian Affairs, Cox. How much stronger and how more humane, healthier and more productive would be the power of this country if instead of rejecting that noble race, it would attract it by means of miscegenation and by means of civilization. So we have here an interesting component. He's not just talking about civilizing the Indians, but he's saying let's make children together. And, and there is a bit of a difference with regards to, in other words, it's not just uh, teaching the barbarians, it's becoming one with them. And that, that's an interesting point. But no one is bringing this issue to that level of consideration, says Ostos. The Creeks and other neighboring tribes have congregated in the surroundings of Canada to send a message to the President and to Congress expressing the grievances of the Indian peoples 
and the means to establish more humane relations. May justice make possible the consequences of freedom. So that's Ostos, 1870, New York City, uh, declaring his interest about Native Americans. And uh, he will leave New York utterly disenchanted with the whole political process with the Cuban junta and the different factions that uh, were actually impeding a strong support for the Cuban revolutionary or independence uh, wars on the front. And the people who were fighting later on, the military will, uh, will complain that the civilians were actually one of the reasons why we lost this war. I'm talking about the 10-year war, 1868 to 1878. Um, and that's the other big confrontation that happens here in New York in 1884 uh, in the hotel where uh, two of the important uh, military uh, men from Cuba, the liberation movement, Maceo and Maximo Gomez, came to meet with Marti to try to pick up, to develop again an independence, a second or third war after the Little, after the little War in 1884. And that happened on 21 uh, West uh, 9th Street. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so Marti is then very much involved with uh, uh, the, the whole um, discussion of whether the government should be civilian or it should be military. Ostos had a complete distaste for the annexation movement and denounced it. He was in a minority at that time. Of course, he, was, he worked for the uh, newspaper of the Junta, which is called the Revolution of Cuba and Puerto Rico. Um, he, uh, he was a, an editor. Uh, and he actually uh, wrote articles that went against the editorial opinion. And he denounced annexation uh, politics. Uh, there's, I'm sure that you have read uh, um, Lisandro's article uh, on sugar and revolution, the whole dynamics of uh, the slave um, uh, production that came to New York I did not really understand why the, there were so many annexationists on the Cuban junta until I read that over 50% of the sugar in the world was actually refined in Brooklyn. And, and, and that that sugar, most of it was coming from Cuba and was produced by slaves. And some of the people who actually came to New York seeking to uh, displace the Spaniards from the political power were owners of uh, sugar plantations. And they were right here trying to argue, discuss, negotiate with the government, grants administration, a um, recognition. But as, as um, there are issues here that we don't really understand, and that has to do with whether, why did Cespedes appoint uh, the people from the Havana Club who were annexationists, right? Uh, and who had, maybe he thought that they would be able to connect better with the American political leadership. At any rate, Aldama, and uh, uh, Morales Lemus and a number of other leaders, were, who, some of which were brilliant in intellectuals, uh, Ponce de Leon, for example, right, did support uh, annexation, and Ostos didn't. So he left. He left also because he, was, he became in love with a woman uh, who went back to Colombia, a Cuban, uh, the daughter of, a, of an emigre family. Um, 
The point of it all is that he decides that he's gonna go through Latin America to try to promote support for the Cuban Revolution, the Cuban Independence War, and also for Puerto Ricans' need for independence. And he spends uh, uh, a year in Peru, he spends about a year and a half in Chile, spends about another year in uh, Ar Argentina, goes through Brazil, writes about all this uh, in extraordinary terms in a book called Viaje, Mi Viaje al Sur, it's not translated, it's my, my journey to the South, uh, I mean to South America. And while he's actually leaving from Chile to Argentina, also was very poor, he didn't have much money. Uh, his family did have some money, but he was all on his own, and he had to earn the, um, every single cent, and he was not very good at making money either. Uh, so he got the support of the Masons and the liberals, and he made a living by writing uh, articles for newspapers. Um, so when he decides to move to Chile, I'm sorry, from Chile to Argentina, he's gonna go and, uh, on a ship that uh, goes down the southern part of Chile, uh, straits, uh, the channels, and uh, um, there are issues with the Native Americans, the Patagones. And this is the other text that I want to, to bring to, to your consideration, and it's called The Fear of the, of the Patagonians. Patagonian Indians are both uh, the, the southernmost uh, part of, of South America that is uh, being divided between Chile and uh, Argentina. And, uh, and the Patagonians were feeling the encroachment of the so-called civilization. So I want to please look at that and I'll make some remarks and then I will be able to perhaps uh, bring in Marti for a couple of uh, points. In this text, you're gonna, you're gonna see that Ostos is actually talking, it's almost a, a romantic setup that uh, he, you could almost make out of it a, an attempt to write a story that wasn't really uh, a, where no action takes place, wasn't really a, 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 com a complete narrative because it becomes an essay. So it, it starts almost with a romantic setup, you know, it, it, it's becoming dark and the, the whole uh, situation is uh, very uh, threatening, very menacing because the Patagonians have been attacking British ships and they, the passengers who are uh, English and uh, Chilean and uh, from other countries know this, but the previous attack, they, had, they actually went for a ship that had guns and was able to defend itself. The, the ship that they're traveling in doesn't have any uh, guns, therefore it's relatively unprotected. And people are very upset and very afraid, therefore the fear of the Patagonians, right? But he is, Ostos is, confesses that he's actually having a uh, great degree of satisfaction because he is seeing how Europeans or white uh, descendants of Europeans are afraid when they're un unprotected for exactly what its civilization has done to Native Americans. Moreover, he then discusses the whole situation of what the West has done either through expeditions of conquest or through scientific expeditions anywhere where there have been Native peoples. And he's very, very dramatic. He says, they have left a trail of blood. Um, and moreover, he will talk about the Patagonians' ab ability to defend themselves and how they are very smart because they actually are able to use intellectually uh, the um, 
means that they have at hand, which means uh, uh, getting attacking ships uh, by surprise, since they don't have the means to do, do it in any other way. So rather than uh, criticize the Patagonians or the Native Americans for treachery, he's actually giving them credit. This is an inversion written in 1869, 1872. Uh, and, and it's not common when you see uh, intellectuals discuss relationships that had to do with what they considered savages, whether noble or not, uh, in terms that are not um, other than uh, superior. Do you notice that in his this discussion of uh, Red Cloud, he talked about his eloquence. I, I still find uh, anybody who has uh, described Indian or Native American this, uh, speech or uh, uh, or presentations as eloquent. So this is this is again an interesting uh, ability to go beyond the stereotype and the and, and the way that natives were characterized at the time. Um, I want to leave Ostos there and then devote a few minutes to Marti because I think I'm running short of time. You you have the you, I included there for your uh, perusal a number of uh, excerpts about his speeches and uh, his writings on women. Because he will go on to Chile at a time when the liberals are in power and will meet some very powerful intellectuals, La Starria, as well as uh, uh, mid, late, late uh, 19th century uh, Chilean um, scholars. Uh, he will, um, and, and politicians, uh, including Amunategui, who later was then uh, the uh, Minister of Education, and, and at a time when Chileans were discussing whether, debating rather, whether they would admit women to their universities. And he is actually uh, proposing in two lectures the scientific education of women. That was happening in England to some extent. That was happening in this country to some extent. Uh, it wasn't really happening yet in Latin America. And it was a very intense and very uh, important debate, national debate for the Chileans, right? The thing is that Ostos is, as well as Marti, focusing on science as a very significant lever for development. And he will actually believe that, you know, there's a morality that comes out of nature. And therefore, you know, morality has to be redefined in terms of natural, uh, natural world rather than uh, mores that have to do with uh, conventions or uh, social uh, practices or so on, uh, inherited social practices, that is. So Marti, as you well know, uh, is trying to put together a revolutionary movement that will get rid of the um, uh, Spanish uh, colonialism in Cuba, but there is a quite significant and very um, elaborate set of relationships with a number of, of intellectuals and activists from the Caribbean. So it wasn't just the Cubans who were fighting uh, for independence. There were also Puerto Ricans and at one point the Haitians and Dominicans who were threatened with annexation by the Grand Administration. The uh, Dominicans, of course, fought it under, against uh, Buenaventura Baez. Um, Ostos wrote articles, I, re I actually was able to retrieve a couple of his articles at that time where it's very much 
surprised, baffled, and denouncing of the American Grant Administration because it's doing in the Dominican Republic and Haiti what, uh, what one of the worst things it, it could possibly do, which is support dictators for its own interests. This is, I'm sure I'll have a chance to perhaps uh, share that with you at some other point, but it was a clear case of expansionism. It was a clear case where uh, you had uh, uh, a dictator who was terrorizing his own people and uh, who seemed to be interested in staying in power by getting uh, support, military and uh, other kinds of especially money uh, from the United States. Now, there are some reasons why that happened. There was, this took about two years in Congress, and there was a big hero involved here besides Luperon who, and Cabral who led the resistance in the Dominican Republic. In this country, a guy named Charles Sumner from Boston, senator, important, radical Republican, friend of Lincoln, opposed to anything that had to do with slave, uh, slavery. And so he was then the director of the uh, Foreign Relations Committee. And what the, the United States Navy got involved supporting uh, the Buenaventura the, uh, uh, and this was brought up in the Senate hearings. You, you are violating the Constitution. It almost reminds us of what we saw 100 years later in Vietnam. You're violating the Constitution, says Charles Sumner. This is the Powers Act. But there are other reasons why we may not want to be you know, involved with the Dominican Republic, and that is they have a black republic that's starting to come to life. Why should we repress or annex or you know, take, take away their independence? It was a significant issue at the time, and Ostos played a role, but many other people did as well in, in opposing it. Martí, on the other hand, tries to organize this movement uh, from New York and from Key West and from uh, uh, all the other colonies of uh, Cubans in the United States and Mexico and Jamaica and Venezuela, and he traveled to that end, he was able to bring people together. Not only was he able to uh, represent the interests of those who actually thought that they would do better commercially uh, if Cuba became an independent country, but he got a tremendous amount of support from tobacco workers, and that was something that didn't happen um, necessarily uh, as a way of, um, in mechanical terms. He actually worked with tobacco workers to earn their trust. He did the same thing with blacks and colored people. So he, along with um, Rafael Serra, uh, founded uh, La Liga de Instrucción in 1889, which is uh, a night school for blacks, for black, Cuban and Puerto Rican blacks. And there were a number of teachers that after, you know, in the, in the after hours in the night time, they would actually teach uh, uneducated blacks uh, they met uh, on 3rd Street, uh, close to, uh, I guess, where it's now, Bleecker Street. And uh, Serra will play a role supporting Martí. And when Martí dies, he, he, he was a journalist. He actually starts an, a newspaper called La Doctrina de Martí, Martí's Doctrine. Martí's uh, essay on race is fundamental because even though I think we can, we can have several readings of that, and you have the text in front of you, uh, that, that text actually reflects the need for unity in Cuba, right? But it's also coming from a humanist perspective that has gone beyond race as a category to describe human beings. It's 
proposing, it's actually uh, denouncing race as a way of dividing humans. And, and this is interesting because I think both uh, also Samarti reach similar positions by different routes, but Marti is number one, trying to avoid what obviously could already be seen, that there's a racial war. And in the essay, he says twice, there won't be a racial war in Cuba because Cubans will be able to go beyond race. Uh, unfortunately, he, he, wasn't, he, he, he wasn't right. There was a racial war in Cuba in 1912, and, uh, and that was uh, um, a, tremendous, um, a tremendous step backward for race relations in Cuba. Um, but in his essay, Martí is trying to do two things. Uh, this appeared in Patria, which was the, uh, his, the newspaper he published in New York City. This newspaper uh, was actually, uh, came out weekly or so, and uh, the editor, the, the printer, I should say, was a Puerto Rican um, mulatto from Ponce. His name was Sotero Figueroa. And you can see that there are people from different countries, different islands, different races, including North Americans, supporting Marti. The idea is to create that kind of a coalition. The idea is also to go beyond race. He was a genius because he was able to bring together the different factions, the military, the, the well-to-do, the workers, blacks, and, and while people attribute his success to um, oratory and intellect, I would like to think that he was just one of the sharpest political minds around. He was able to really put together a coalition of sectors that trusted him. And that's why he was able to uh, organize uh, a war against all odds at a time when both the, uh, the uh, US government was not really too interested in having uh, an independence movement in Cuba, and when the Spanish were still not terribly powerful, but powerful enough to maintain you know, a hold there. Um, and so this is, this is an interesting story. This is race in the 19th century that deals with um, Latinos, Latin Americans, and how to uh, put together strategies that could work. I think I'm gonna leave it there. Thank you for your, for your attention. Um, I think the, the process that Orlando's describing here, which is important, I think, in, in looking at the 19th century, in looking at the 19th century, uh, is um, that all this activity by Martí, uh, by Ostos, and those that even came before them, in many ways, was the fact that New York <clears throat> is really a, a, the principal stage, I would say, for a great deal of nation building. It would be a mistake uh, to believe that all these activities were simply an effort to overthrow the Spanish. I think Martí realized that. Uh, this wasn't about overthrowing the Spanish. That was an important step, but this was about building nation. And so that's why the, the essays that, that Orlando is using go well beyond simply the activities of emigres who are seeking to overthrow a government in their native land. 
It has to do with questions about race, right? About diversity, about how um, uh, a future Puerto Rico, a future Cuba, right, would be essentially organized as a nation. Uh, and that was taking place, imagine, in New York, uh, which in many ways is a place that at this time is in the cutting edge of modernity, right? And where all these issues about what is the proper role of the state, for example, in regulating inequalities, right? In, in regulating racial difference, all of those things are being discussed, right? In which you have the tremendous differences between rich and poor, right? And the, 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 the manner in which Martí, for example, and Ostos both looked at uh, the problems of the U.S. thinking about how essentially a future Latin America, a future particularly Hispanic Caribbean would look like. I think uh, we can um, um, we can attribute that, of course, to number one, uh, the uh, um, uh, invention of the printing press, right? Uh, but beyond, you know, it, I'd like to just make a, a quick uh, uh, homage to the Cubans and Puerto Ricans to a lesser extent. You have to remember that Puerto Rico was always a poor island, contrary to its name. Or it was really a, a, a military. Deep, uh, spot where they actually were able to uh, dock the, uh, um, the, the big uh, naval um, um, the, the, uh, the armada that was bringing all the gold from, uh, from, from uh, um, South America and from Mexico stopped last at in San Juan. So it did not have a chance to develop as much as Cuba did or other islands in the Caribbean. So this is going to be reflected later on in the kinds of things that happened with the printing press. Um, we received the printing press rather late, beginning of the, 19th, of the 19th century. Cuba was already involved with all kinds of things before that. New York City and Philadelphia and New Orleans uh, and Key West must have produced, I think I counted it once, it was 50-something newspapers in about a 40-year period. Granted, newspapers were then a bit more than uh, sheets of paper with information. Uh, but this was the kind of uh, activity that was happening among Cuban and Puerto Rican immigrants, right? Immigrants, uh, political exiles. Uh, a lot of it political, a fair amount of it too uh, literary and informative. And the, towards the uh, 1870s, there were a couple of very interesting uh, magazines that had illustrations, rather sophisticated illustrations. New York City became the center also to sent uh, publications to Latin America. This is the story of Apple House. Apple House had an extraordinary story with regards to development of the, of the press, of the book industry in, in this country. Uh, Daniel Apple from Boston came to live in New York and developed this extraordinary publishing house. And then, of course, both Osto San Martí as well as many of the exiles worked with Apple as translators or as editors. And uh, they, they, Apple started to get into the business of publishing uh, cartillas, uh, um, textbooks, that would be used in the sciences and that would be used in the uh, uh, history, a number of, and, and these exiles, many of which were very accomplished intellectuals and translators were involved in that work. So intellectual activity 
in New York City and in the Cuban exile communities was extraordinary. They published these newspapers that got smuggled. They had support from often, you know, the British or the Americans, and they were able to get, you know, newspapers in the ships and distribute them uh, throughout. Sometimes some politicians in some of these countries, like Luperon, or uh, would, would be supportive and play a role in helping to disseminate. Uh, sometimes you would have countries in, like Chile or Argentina that had a very dynamic uh, intellectual, or Mexico, right? A very dynamic intellectual uh, development already and, and would be eager to print or to disseminate publications that came from this country. So I think, uh, even though I don't have not studied it, I am very much uh, aware that there's a tremendous amount of uh, power that goes on there with regards to dissemination of uh, information.